We really need new phones. T-Mobile will cover the cost of four amazing new iPhone 15s, and each line is only $25 a month. New iPhone 15s? It's better over here. Only at T-Mobile get four iPhone 15s on us and four lines for $25 per line per month with eligible trade-in when you switch. Minimum of four lines for $25 per line per month with auto pay discount using debit or bank account. $5 more per line without auto pay, plus taxes and fees. Phone fee 24 monthly bill credits for all well qualified customers. Contact us before canceling account to continue bill credits or credit stop and balance on required finance agreement due. $35 per line connection charge applies. Ctmobile.com. Baseball is in full swing. NBA playoffs are heating up. And your NFL team is gearing up for training camp. Listen to the latest on the teams you love here on the Odyssey app. The biggest sports radio stations in the country providing unrivaled local coverage of their teams all in one place exclusive interviews with players coaches and team executives streaming live and always available on demand stay in the know with your favorite teams right here on the odyssey app you're listening to kcbs in depth we came very close to a catastrophic breakdown of our democratic accountability the people places and issues the bay area is talking about right now we're kind of stuck in this cycle where every summer we're hearing another story about a big fire in a town burning down it's still extremely difficult to hold government agencies accountable for abuses that take place in the name of national security this is kcbs in depth Today, Stanford is considered one of the top research universities in the world. But in 1905, after one of its co-founders, Jane Stanford, died, its future hung in the balance. To protect it, a group of powerful people spun a web of deception, obscuring the true cause of Jane Stanford's death and squashing a police investigation before it could reveal uncomfortable truths. But now, more than a century later, the cover-up is beginning to unravel. Welcome to KCBS In-Depth, broadcasting throughout the Bay Area and streaming on the Odyssey app. I'm Keith Benconi. Who killed Jane Stanford? It's a question that modern-day historian Richard White has spent years pursuing, painstakingly piecing together clues from old newspapers and scattered archives. The process has taken him through the upper crust of Gilded Age San Francisco, as well as through the city's seamy underbelly of police corruption and gang warfare. White has written about what he found in his new book called Who Killed Jane Stanford? So today on the program, we're going to take a step back from the many pressing questions of today and see what we can learn from this century-old whodunit. So welcoming on the author now, uh, Richard White. He is a professor emeritus of American history with Stanford University. Richard White, glad to have you on. Welcome to KCBS In-Depth. I'm glad to be here, Keith. So again, uh, the title of the book is Who Killed Jane Stanford? And uh, by the end of the book, you do give your own answer. But really, from a historical perspective, you make the point that probably the more important question isn't who exactly killed her. Instead, it's why did San Francisco police decide to stop looking for her killer? You know, why did they accept a probably bogus natural cause explanation about her death, uh, despite some major evidence pointing to strychnine poisoning? Uh, and, and the answer to that question tells us a lot about what sort of city San Francisco was at the turn of the century. So a lot of meaty questions there, but uh, probably uh, better to start right at the beginning. So for anyone who knows nothing about the history here, uh, who was Jane Stanford and how did she come to have her last name on a university? Jane Stanford was the wife of Leland Stanford. And, and more critically, she was the mother of Leland Stanford Jr., 
And it's not usually um, quoted today, but the true name of Stanford University is Leland Stanford Junior University. It's a university named after a dead child. And she's the co-founder. Mm. She and Leland found the university in memory of their dead child. And she is just as critical in its founding as Leland was. And she's really more important to the early history of the university because Leland dies soon after the founding of the university. But it's going to be Jane Stanford who sees it through its first 15 years. Right. And so we're talking about a couple that made their fortune on railroad money. As you suggest in the book, a lot of it is made through dubious means. But that fortune, much of it is channeled into the university, and it goes on to be a very prominent university. Uh, I guess as we look back at this story that we're going to be talking about today, it really gets to this question of the stories that we tell ourselves about ourselves, the stories that actually make it through and the stories that don't make it through. So maybe a good place to start that conversation is what story does Stanford University today tell itself about its founding and how is Jane Stanford a part of that story? You can hear the story of Stanford's um, founding just by taking the usual tours around campus, which are usually conducted by undergraduates, usually an undergraduate walking backwards, Mm. talking to a group of prospective students and their parents and visitors. And the story is a very compelling one. The story is um, two people, rich people, mourning for their child, decide that what they're going to do is give their money to the children of California. They're going to create a tuition-free university for anyone in the state of California who qualifies to come to, and it will be a memory to the dead child, it will provide opportunities for the children of California. And it's an exercise in benevolence. It's an exercise in simply um, the use of money for good by good mm. people. And um, philanthropy. It's a, it's, a, it's a statement also about the value of philanthropy. Right, and as you detail in your book, the philanthropic act gets tangled up in the big personalities of the philanthropic givers. And there are many battles about what exactly Stanford University is going to end up looking like and uh, the the personalities of uh, other folks uh, hired by the Stanfords also come to play here. Uh, And that is all kind of the backdrop for Jane Stanford's death and the cover-up of uh, that murder. So uh, it's it's a little bit difficult to know where to start here, but uh, I guess I'll I'll send it over to you. Tell us a little bit about the circumstances around Jane Stanford's death in 1905. Well, before I get to the death, I think I'll take the first part of your question, which is um, the problem with philanthropy is philanthropists. Mm. Um, the story is just is just not true. Jane and Leland promise their entire fortune to Stanford University, mm. but they don't give their entire fortune to Stanford University. In fact, what they give to Stanford University is a small amount of money, which Leland borrowed from the um, slush fund of the Pacific Improvement Company, which is a subsidiary of the Southern Pacific Railroad, and they give it three ranches, all of which are in debt, and as one of the trustees said, brought us nothing but taxes. So Stanford Mm. originates with debt and a set of promises. It also turns out that the federal government is going to sue the Stanford estate to get money back, which had been loaned to the Central Pacific Railroad and never repaid, and they want Leland Stanford's share of that. So immediately after Leland Stanford's death, the university goes into crisis. 
it goes into crisis because in fact, it does not have the money that it supposedly had. That money is gonna to go to James Stanford and that money is gonna be tied up by the lawsuit. It also turns out that all of the legal documents that found Stanford University violate California state law. And it's gonna take years to sort that out. And it's only gonna be uh, an amendment to the California constitution, which is still there that allows Stanford to go forward. So the basic story is, is a piety, you know, it, it, it's nice, but it's not really what happened. And so to understand Jane Stanford and to understand the problem she gets in, you have to understand the problems with Stanford University. And those are the things I sketch out at the beginning of the book. Right, right. No, it's a good call going back to get that foundation. And just to add even a couple more layers to that, uh, we have family members that are coming after Jane Stanford's money, kind of circling the waters. We have her own personal staff that have been promised a certain amount of money, but they also have kind of rankled under her uh, leadership, so to speak, over the the decades. So there is a lot of ill will there. And then uh, on top of all that, Jane Stanford has some uh, pretty remarkable, even at the time, beliefs about the afterlife. Uh, she, she is a uh, spiritualist. And uh, to many people's eyes, that's not a very respectable set of beliefs for her to have. So uh, all of this kind of setting the stage for what's going to happen in 1905. Yeah, you're perfectly right on, on every single one of those points. I mean, one of the things that's critical about Jane Stanford is her private secretary, Bertha Berner, who's one of the suspects in the murder, says she ruled people through her money. And one of the things mm. to realize is everybody, the main characters in these book all work for Jane Stanford. They're her lawyers, their university administrators, even all her relatives are on her payroll. Um, her servants are on her payroll. And she tries to dominate and control each of their lives in the fate of Stanford University. And in doing so, she stirs up a great deal of resentment. She takes advice, but among the advice she takes is from her um, dead husband and dead son. She is a spiritualist. Mm -hmm. And she says her main advisors come from the dead. And this creates a certain problem with legal documents. Um, the dead, so to speak, do not have legal standing. And when you're writing legal documents, when you're writing wills and trusts based on the advice of the dead, you're opening yourself up for challenge. And when you start excluding relatives from your own wills and begin using your wills as a way to get at people, you're creating enemies. She is creating... Um, a swamp of deceit and a swamp of ill will that is going to come back to haunt her in Stanford University. Yeah, yeah. As we'll see in just a second, as uh, we reveal more of this story real quick, I want to remind anybody who might just be joining us that this is KCBS In-Depth, your weekly deep dive into the events and trends shaping life in the Bay Area and beyond. I'm Keith Menconi. Today on the program, we're speaking with Richard White. He's a professor emeritus of American history at Stanford University, also an author and a Pulitzer Prize finalist. His new work is Who Killed Jane Stanford? It's a book aiming to untangle the complicated life and even more complicated death of Stanford University's co-founder. So, who killed Jane Stanford? I think that we have about enough context there to now get to the part of the book where you talk about her killing, and actually there's two murder attempts on Jane Stanford. So uh, bring us there if you could. Sure. In January of 1905, um, Jane Stanford goes to bed in her mansion at Knob Hill, and she takes a uh, bottled water. She drank Poland spring water, which was a bottled water she drank regularly at the time. But this night it tasted funny and she spits it out. And it turns out that somebody has laced her Poland spring water with rat poison. 
um, copious amounts of rat poison. She throws up, they take the bottle out for testing, they find the rat poisoning. And the first thing they do, which strikes us as um, odd, but was not odd in Gilded Age America, is they immediately try to disguise the fact that she has been poisoned. They know she's been poisoned because mm. they have the test from the, um, from the chemist which they took it to, took the bottles to. But the last thing they want is a scandal. And so they hire detectives not to try to catch the murderer, not primarily the attempted murderer, but instead to cover up the, um, the poisoning. But Jane Stanford knows that she has been poisoned. She's very fearful. She leaves the mansion. She goes down to San Jose just to be out of the mansion. She returns to San Francisco. And there she's advised that she should probably either go to Los Angeles or leave the country. She decides to go to Hawaii. And Hawaii, six weeks later, in February 28th, at the Moana Hotel in Hawaii, um, she goes to bed and she asks her secretary, Bertha Berner, who had been one of the people present at the first poisoning, to give her some bicarbonate of soda because she wants to take it because she ate a big lunch that day, though she had eaten very little dinner. And Berner leaves it with the bicarbonate of soda. She and the other maid leave the room, go to bed. Jane Stanford is sometime during that night, takes the bicarbonate of soda, and it contains strychnine. This time, not rat poisoning. This time, pure strychnine and just enough of a dose to be a lethal dose, and she will die of that poisoning, saying that this is a terrible death to die. Yeah, yeah, and uh, you recount the convulsions that she went through and the attempts to uh, save her life. And then what follows is uh, an investigation that uh, points very strongly towards strychnine poisoning. But we have some other players in this drama that, as you suggested earlier, really don't want a story about murder to come forward. Who are the folks that are trying to obscure this murder and what are their motivations? Well, they there are several groups that have motivations to obscure the murder. The first one is going to be David Starr Jordan, the um, president of the university. Of Stanford University. Stanford, Stanford University, who Jane Stanford planned to fire when she returned to San Francisco. That's that's very, very clear. Mm. Um, what, what he's afraid of is that um, her murder was a good thing for him because it preserves his job could endanger all the trusts and wills. And the argument is, is if there's a murderer, there's going to be a trial. If there's a trial, they're going to look at how these trusts and wills were made up and the motives for murder. And none of that can do Stanford University any good. He's just as worried about another story that's circulating, that she committed suicide. And she committed suicide would also tend to make all these legal documents suspect and open to challenge. So he does not want this to happen because he thinks it can endanger the funding of Stanford University. There's another one, George Prothers, who on the one hand knows pretty well that she has been poisoned, but he realizes that either poisoning or suicide, again, is going to endanger the legal foundation of Stanford University, particularly because he's in charge of a second trust that she'd established the money to go to Stanford University at her death, but if she's been murdered, he realizes that whole trust is in danger. He does not want murder or suicide either. The final group is going to be Stanford family. It's not really the Stanford family, it's the Lathrop family, Jane's hmm. brothers, sisters, nieces, and nephews, some of whom stand to get a great deal of money from the will, but many of them want more money. And there's going to be a quarrel there, whether they seek to break the will, break the trust, reveal the murder in hopes of getting more money, or are afraid that, in fact, if they do that, they're going to endanger the money they already have. And involved in all this are going to be Stanford's numerous lawyers. So their major concern is making sure the trusts, 
and the wills that give money to the heirs and to Stanford University stay intact. And nobody can see how a murder trial is gonna help any of this. They do not want this to go to court. They do not want stories of suicide, which leaves them with the choice of a natural death. Right, but uh, there were medical professionals, there were law enforcement professionals in Hawaii where this uh, death took place, and they found pretty compelling evidence for strychnine poisoning. And yet, uh, somehow, uh, San Francisco police were convinced, enough convinced, of this natural cause story that they were willing to drop this case. How did that come to be? That's that's another complicated story. Um, you're perfectly right. The coroner's jury in Hawaii reaches a verdict that she um, came to her death by the hand at the hands of person or persons unknown, and she died of strychnine poisoning. The autopsy reveals she dies of strychnine poisoning. When David Starr Jordan gets there, the first thing he has to do is discredit the autopsy, discredit the doctors, and he sets to work to do that. He hires another doctor, a doctor who had never um, examined the body, who was not at the autopsy, and has this doctor begin to say that, in fact, what she died of basically too much gingerbread, um, which gave her gas, which caused, caused the heart attack. He also has um, Bertha Burner totally reverse her testimony in front of the coroner's jury. He writes this up in a report, but the report he refuses to reveal to anyone because the problem is if he reveals the report, it turns out that Bertha Burner either perjured herself before the coroner's journey or was jury or was lying now. So what he does is he says, trust me, basically. I'm going to take this back to the San Francisco police. And he does take him back to the San Francisco police. And the San Francisco police had gotten nowhere investigating the first poisoning. Um, they had said it really hadn't taken place at all, but it dead Jane Stanford tends to cast doubt on that. So now what they will agree to very quickly, as soon as they see the evidence from him and the private detectives who accompanied him, is they agree to the natural death theory. Now, the reason they agree to that, and this is a complicated side story, is the chief of police at the time was about to be fired because um, he had been involved in a scandal in Chinatown and Chinatown gambling. The San Francisco police are corrupt, they're in a mess, the death of Jane Stanford is the least of their problems. And the detective who had been investigating Jane Stanford's death will end up becoming chief of police, and he will just keep quiet. Wow. So just to highlight one of the points that you made, so David Starr Jordan, again, the president of Stanford University, he comes up with this sort of uh, freelance uh, autopsy report and uh, investigation that comes to very different conclusions, but he's not revealing the contents of that report. It, it remains secret. So he's basically convincing San Francisco PD to change the course of their investigation with his own investigation that he's not making public. It seems like a fairly flimsy pretext and uh, just all highlighting the I guess you could call them almost upper crust shenanigans that a lot of these folks are pulling. What does this whole episode reveal about what made San Francisco tick at the turn of the century that something like this could be pulled off? Because we should mention, I mean, we uh, there's still more story to come, but we should mention for a very long time, the official story that many, many people accepted was this story of natural causes, despite all the evidence that we've discussed before. This is not going to be much of a shock to your listeners, but in um, early 20th century San Francisco, just as in 21st century United States, the 21st century United States, if you are very powerful, you can tell very bald lies and simply cut off discussion. Mm. And that's what happens here. People do protest. They say this is ridiculous, but it goes away. Newspapers have short attention spans. 
The great thing that will happen to allow it to finally go under is the 1906 earthquake, which will change the subject. But there's a lot of people who don't buy the story, but there's very little that they can do about it once the police have shut down the investigation. And that the major people running the police department, who themselves are very clearly corrupt in 1905, 1906, are the very people who had conducted the, the Stanford investigation. They have no interest in undermining their own standing and their own position. And, was, and so the sordidness of it is true, but the person, the irony of it is one of the people who did the most to corrupt San Francisco politics is Leland Stanford. He had done an awful lot to protect his interests by corrupting San Francisco politics in ways that eventually come back to um, undermine the investigation of his wife's death. Yeah. By 19, late 1905, very few people have much of a motive for continuing this case. Everybody has to gain by going away. Nobody has much to gain by revealing what had really happened. We really need new phones. T-Mobile will cover the cost of four amazing new iPhone 15s, and each line is only $25 a month. New iPhone 15s? It's better over here. Only at T-Mobile get four iPhone 15s on us and four lines for $25 per line per month with eligible trade-in when you switch. Minimum of four lines for $25 per line per month with auto-pay discount using debit or bank account. $5 more per line without auto-pay, plus taxes and fees. Phone fee at 24 monthly bill credits for all well qualified customers. Contact us before canceling account to continue bill credits or credit stop and balance on required finance agreement due. $35 per line connection charge applies. Ctmobile.com. One more time, I want to remind anybody that this is KCBS In-Depth. I'm Keith Manconi. Today, we're taking a look back in time to consider who killed Jane Stanford. It's a, an intriguing question and also the title of a new book by Richard White, author and professor emeritus of American history at Stanford University. So we've kind of gone over the basic details of that outline. And you, as we mentioned at the beginning, do have your own theory uh, as to who was ultimately responsible here. I'll leave it to you whether or not you want to uh, put that to our listeners during this conversation or let them read the book. But I, I, I suppose in the minutes that we have left, uh, what I kind of want to do is tease apart some of what this book reveals about the time and place where this occurred, because th there are aspects of this that play into gender politics. There's aspects of this that play into the social mores of the time and uh, also attitudes towards uh, religion and academia and journalism even. So uh, I guess let's start with the, the gender question. Uh, one of the reasons that Jane Stanford was so resented by some of her servants was the stifling control that she held over their personal lives and how they conducted their uh, romantic or even friendly affairs. I mean, one of the ironies of this is Stanford University um, rightly celebrates Jane Stanford and Leland Stanford for making the university co-ed. What they don't emphasize is that by the early 20th century, Jane Stanford would have liked to have exiled all women undergraduates from the university, either in a separate campus mm. or just ending it. She was mostly worried that the um, women were going to corrupt the men. Um, this is a place in which she's, she enters into a kind of sexual panic about undergraduate sexuality. 
And I can't tell. I think a lot of it has to do with she tended to idealize her own son as the sort of prepubescent pure in the way they talk about in the early 20th century. And she begins to see undergraduate women as endangering that memory of her son by, by endangering mm. the, the, um, the um, chastity of male undergraduates. So we have the sense in which women are actually being portrayed as sexual predators and corrupting the male university, which means corrupting her memory of her son. She also does the same thing with her servants. She, she refuses to um, let them have their own personal sexual or romantic lives. She intervenes repeatedly with a great deal, getting a great deal of resentment from her female servants. So there's going to be a sense here in which there's a um, sexual tension that runs throughout the early 20th century, much of which has to do with Jane Stanford's attempt to control sexuality, particularly female sexuality. Yeah, sort of these uh, Victorian era mores. Um, an another thread that runs through this is the racism uh, and racist ideas held by many of these characters. You know, there's there, it makes some of these scenes a little bit difficult to track. You're, you're, you're thinking to yourself, oh, OK, I'll, I'll root for this character. And then you learn that, uh, well, actually, that character was a supporter of eugenics ideas. And then you want to support that character. Oh, but no, he supported eugenics, too. So uh, but it, it, these ideas actually do shape uh, the 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 beliefs of the early leaders of Stanford University in some pretty big ways. Yeah, um, David Starr Jordan was a eugenicist. Um, Edward Ross, whose firing really sets much of this story in motion, was also a eugenicist. Um, most of the progressive intellectuals at the time were eugenicists, but progressive intellectuals were also the people who were arguing that there should be more um, equity in the United States. They were conservationists. They were, they were pushing for universal education. There are a set of beliefs that don't track with us. There's, there's a mishmash of beliefs. So that there's that, and there's a great deal of racism. I mean, one of the things is time and again, the suspects are going to, or the detectives are going to turn to Chinatown because Chinese become suspects because, in fact, Chinese are subject to a great deal of racism. They're the immediate um, source of suspicion when, when Jane Stanford is murdered and when Jane Stanford has her water poisoned in, um, in San Francisco. So the racism has to do an awful lot with the, with the suspicions about who actually did it. And I, and I think in the end that some of the detectives were trying to set up some Chinese, um, probably Ah Wing, to take the fall. But other things happen once they decide there's no murder. So racism runs throughout the book. Um, eugenics runs throughout the book. Jane Stanford is very worried that Stanford University is teaching evolution. That runs throughout the book. Um, there's a whole series of, of tensions that, that inform the whole investigation. Well, ultimately, here we are more than 100 years later, and we're left to contend with the complexities of this story that just gets uh, more complex and nettlesome the closer you look at it. How are we to rethink our history when we're confronted with these new facts and these uncomfortable truths about where, you know, a venerable institution like Stanford uh, has come from and the stories that it's telling itself. Uh, what are your thoughts on contending with the past, either in this case or just more broadly as a, as a country that does have such a difficult past to contend with? The Stanford University story is a fable, but it's a fairly simple fable compared with the kinds of fables we tell ourselves about the country as a whole. The problem with American history, as it's understood by most Americans, is they don't really understand the nation's history. They understand a set of fables. And these fables are designed to make you feel good. 
They're designed to make you think that in the past, things were all right, that we were set on the right path. And all we have to do is go back and recover that path, follow it through and everything will be all right. We've strayed and all we have to do is return to the path that we've abandoned. But actual history is much more complicated. You know, that the, the, the fables are wrong. We never started out in purity. We started out with the same kind of complex and flawed people that we are today. And that we that simply going back to the past and recovering our original virtues, our original values, what we're probably going to find is those original values and original virtues are a little problematic. But for me as a historian, this is an odd way is actually um, gratifying. It actually makes me more hopeful because if in fact we as a country were um, flawed from the beginning, and we've managed to get to where we are today, still flawed, but still struggling onward, that's actually a good sign. And Stanford University turned out in the end to be a much better university than they ever imagined it to be in the early 20th century. It is still, I would argue, flawed. And I'm, one of the things that I think is a line that runs through this is Stanford, like other privately endowed universities, is always about the endowment. You always have to wonder about where the money came from, what you did in exchange for the money, and whether protecting the money, protecting the endowment isn't in the end the major goal of the university. Yeah, well, an oddly, as you say, hopeful note uh, to leave things on. If uh, you could turn things around at Stanford, how about the rest of us? Uh, we'll close it out there, though. We have been speaking today to Richard White, Professor Emeritus of American History at Stanford University, also an author and Pulitzer Prize finalist. His new work that we've been talking about today is Who Killed Jane Stanford? Richard White, thanks so much. Thank you, Keith. And thank you all for listening. For KCBS and In-Depth, I'm Keith Mancone. Stay safe, be well. We'll see you next week. You've been listening to KCBS In-Depth. Get every episode by subscribing on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and other podcast platforms. Visit kcbsradio.com for more news and interviews. We are the Bay Area's news station, KCBS. We really need new phones. T-Mobile will cover the cost of four amazing new iPhone 15s, and each line is only $25 a month. New iPhone 15s? It's better over here. Only at T-Mobile get four iPhone 15s on us and four lines for $25 per line per month with eligible trade-in when you switch. Minimum of four lines for $25 per line per month with auto-pay discount using debit or bank account. $5 more per line without auto-pay, plus taxes and fees. Phone fee at 24 monthly bill credits for all well qualified customers. Contact us before canceling accounts to continue bill credits or credit stop and balance on required finance agreement due. $35 per line connection charge applies. See T-Mobile.com. Hey, Rob Bradford here. I have set out on a mission with my good friends at FanDuel to prove what I have known for some time. Baseball isn't boring. Now I have a daily podcast to prove it with some of the most notable people in the baseball world screaming baseball isn't boring from the mountaintops or at least agreeing to come on our show. Players, managers, GMs, and yes, even the commissioner of baseball, Rob Manfred. It has been a constant wave of baseball's most powerful voices. So join the revolution. Subscribe and soak in baseball isn't boring. Listen on your Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. You'll be glad you did.